Good morning. Will you take a moment um, and pray with me? Lord, as we come to look at your word, to think about the anxiety that we all feel, the fears that we have, the commands that you've given us, help your word to give us insight. Most of all, send your peace, that peace that we'll hear about this morning, peace that we can't understand, peace that guards us. Send that peace to guard us this morning and help us to press into you, to love you more, to love each other better, bring you glory above all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, this morning, kind of taking a break from Mark, as you see, and we're in, uh, jump to Philippians, and you're like, well, why are we here? What's the point of this passage? Well, during this time of year, um, I think that we hear a lot of words that we just kind of toss around, and I think in some ways they've kind of lost meaning, um, because like you walk down the aisle at Hobby Lobby, and like everything has these words on it, so I'm thinking of words like, um, thankful, Grateful, Thanksgiving, uh, or maybe um, now that Thanksgiving is over, maybe you'll hear more commonly, joy, right? We have one of those, a little joy thing. Or maybe peace. I know my mother-in-law has one of those, peace, yeah. These are words that like just are synonymous with this time of year. We're like, okay, yeah, Thanksgiving, joy, peace. But I think that like when we really think about it, this time of year... <laughs> Is it really filled with any of that stuff? Really often, instead of um, thankful or joyful or peaceful, we would describe ourselves as discontent or grumpy <laughs> or maybe anxious. Well, if you look at verse 6 of the text this morning that Lanny just read, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. And that's a really tough command. Right? We have a lot of stuff going on. All year long we have everything that can be, we can be anxious about. But then we come to a time of year that gets more and more busy, a time of year that is hard because of people that we've lost, that we miss, a time of year that's, that's hard for lots of different reasons. We have all this stress, all this stuff piling on us, and we're like, how do I not worry? How do I not be fearful of what's to come? So this morning I want to look at this text because I think it helps us see how we combat that anxiety. And I don't mean like clinical anxiety. I don't mean like, like oh, you know, medical grade. I mean like the kind of thing that everybody endures at some level. That just general fear, discomfort, worry that we all give into. And I think the key thing that we can hear this morning, so this is the, this is the main idea if you want to write this down. Paul is teaching us that we can combat anxiety through Y'all are going to love this. It's a really good Baptist preacher thing. I've got some peas for you. Okay, you ready? We can combat anxiety through the practice of praise, through pressing into Christian community, through prayer, and through God's promise of peace. Well, here are all those peas. Isn't that great? Practice of praise, pressing into Christian community, prayer, and resting in the promise of peace. So, our text is Philippians 4. 4 through 7, please turn there. Get there if you'd like to. I think it'd be great for you to be in the text with me. Um, I think it's also helpful 
uh, since we're coming in on the end of a letter here, we're jumping into the end of a text, uh, we need to get a little context, okay? So this is a letter written by Paul to the church at Philippi. This was a church that Paul actually helped found uh, five or eight years or so before he wrote this letter. And at the time the letter's being written, Paul is actually in prison. Um, and he had just received this gift from the Philippian church. They had, they had sent him this monetary gift to help him out because he's going through hard times. He's, you know, in prison. Um, and we know that based on Acts 21 through 26, all that, that area, you can go read it there, um, Paul had encountered a whole lot of gift difficulty um, throughout his whole ministry. But particularly, he comes to Jerusalem, which he had been trying to get there and, and bring this gift of aid to the Christians in Jerusalem. Um, once he gets there, he gets locked up. He's in prison there for two years. Um, and then he's able to, because he's a Roman citizen, he can appeal to Caesar, uh, to the Roman emperor, and he gets sent to Rome to stand trial there instead of in Jerusalem. And so this is where he is now. He's in Rome. And while there's some good stuff that's happening, he, he writes to the Philippians that there's some positive things that are going on. Uh, the gospel's being carried throughout the Praetorian Guard, which is great. He's been able to witness to some Jews there. Um, but in a lot of ways, this time is full of difficulty and discouragement. Like, you can imagine that. He's locked up. He's likely, like, on the way to execution, most likely. We know that he is. He, that's, I mean, once he makes it to Rome, he doesn't leave there. So it's while under house arrest in Rome that Paul gets this gift from the Philippians, and he's like, ah, oh, that's great. They're motivated to help me. And while they are motivated to help after hearing about Paul's hardships, it's not like the Philippian believers were really just like all happy and everything was going great for them. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the authors I read says this, The opponents of the Christian community were causing great alarm in the congregation, in the Philippian congregation. The Judaizing threat was making itself felt. Physical needs were producing anxiety among the members who had begun to wonder whether their Christian faith was even capable of sustaining them. All of those factors combined to create disagreements, distrust, a poisonous spirit of self-seeking. The leadership of the church, particularly the persons of Yodia and Syntyche, had fallen into the sin of dissension, and the general health of the church had deteriorated considerably. So, the believers at Philippi are aware of Paul's need, and they send him this gift, but they're also aware of their own need, and so with their gift, they send a request. They say, hey, Paul, will you please send Timothy to help us out? We need somebody to come and help us. And Paul writes, and you can go back in the letter, Paul writes, I can't really spare Timothy right now. I want to send him to you. I'm going to send him to you later if, if I can. Uh, but right now, this is a really dark time for me, and he's the only one who can minister to me. So I need, I need Timothy here. But I can't spare Timothy. What I can spare are some words of encouragement, some words of advice, uh, and that's the letter that we're looking at, this letter to the Philippians. So Paul has written this letter in response to their asking for help, um, but also we're sending him help. So with that groundwork laid, we can kind of jump into the actual passage. Look with me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says that we can combat anxiety first through praise. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. All right, so that's challenging enough. I can stop there and you can be like, all right, I'm going to have to work on that for the next six months. But think about this. When you consider the context here for Paul and for the Philippians that he's writing to, this command to have joy sounds kind of crazy. Uh, Paul's in prison. 
he's going to be executed for preaching the gospel. The Philippians have all kinds of problems going on. Outside, inside, struggles happening. And then here is Paul saying, rejoice in the Lord. And then it's almost like he realizes, you're probably going to push back a little bit here. Uh, So he preemptively clarifies himself. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, in case you thought I stuttered or misspoke, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. So what does it mean to rejoice always? All right, well, I think in order for us to understand what that means, let's think about what it doesn't mean first, okay? There's a distinction between joy and happiness. Paul is not telling the Philippian believers, he's not telling us, be happy always. He's also not just telling them to generally just, just have joy, just rejoice, just be happy. The exhortation is to Rejoice in the Lord. So the command is actually to go and find joy in the only place that real joy can be found anyway, in Christ. Because joy, true joy, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, and patience. The gift, fruits of the Spirit, one of them is joy. True joy is a, is a gift of the Spirit, and it's not contingent on circumstances, Our happiness is very contingent on circumstances. We can go from happy to mad in a couple of seconds. Just ask any of our kids. When difficult things happen, we're not happy. Paul wasn't happy to be in prison. He wasn't asking the Philippians, just be happy. Just put a smile on your face. That's not what he's saying. But he is telling them to rejoice. Because as one author said, joy is not based on changing circumstances but on the one who does not change. True joy is this sense of contentment, of pleasure, and knowing that the Lord is in control, delighting in Him, resting in Him, trusting in Him. We are able to rejoice in the Lord always because He's faithful always. We can trust Him. And we can practice this joy by actually rejoicing. Like one of the main things that we can do to find joy is to worship, to praise the Lord. Worship is one of the key ways that we rejoice in the Lord always. And we do that in many different settings. We should do it privately, right? At home, in your car. You catch me driving in my car, it's probably what I'm doing. Just saying. I I love music, so I'm singing in the car. That's what I do. Try it. It's great. Everybody looks at you like you're crazy. It's wonderful. Worship alone. We should worship with our families, like gather together with our families, spend time singing songs together at home. Advent's a great time to start that. If you don't have a regular practice of family worship, read part of the Christmas story and sing a Christmas song together. That's a really great way to get started with that. Worship with your family. And we should, of course, be praising God corporately with our church. We should gather together weekly and rejoice with other believers. And notice here, Paul's command is to rejoice in the Lord always. So this is like both a conscious action, so it's something that we are doing, we're thinking about it, we're putting effort and attention into our worship, but it's also something that we are continuously doing. Maybe not every single second of every day, but it's a regular pattern of our lives, a regular occurrence. It's an important part of each and every day. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's been like 
a really difficult day, a really difficult week, a really difficult month, a really difficult year. That's not, he doesn't give any, anything for that. He just says, rejoice in the Lord always. Joy is the choice that we can make, the choice that we're commanded to make. And then after this command to rejoice, which is the first one, there's another exhortation. This is kind of connected to our worship. Paul says, you can combat anxiety by praising the Lord, but he also says you can do it by pressing into Christian community. So look at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. All right, reasonableness. That's maybe not the best word to use here. Maybe it's difficult to understand. This Greek word can also be translated as forbearing spirit or gentleness. I like gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. And this is probably, most likely, a direct reference to the stuff that's going on in the church at Philippi, right? They're having all this strife that's being stirred up, and he's saying, hey, let your gentleness be known. Be reasonable with other people. If you look back at uh, chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's saying, quit thinking about yourself all the time. Right? Quit being so selfish and causing strife and division. Put others above yourselves. Think of others as more significant. And then just before we got to uh, the text we're in this morning in verse 4, back in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So there's a direct reference, right, to these two women who are apparently having some sort of conflict. And he's saying, I want you guys to have unity, not division. I want you to have community, not strife. So Paul says, let your gentleness, let your reasonableness, let your mercy, your tolerance, your forbearing spirit, let it be known to others. Don't let your grumpiness be known to others. Don't let your irritability be, be known to others. Let your gentleness be known. We are also called to that spirit of unity. Right? That's one thing that regular corporate worship ought to bring about for us. It, it helps create that sense of unity. Because when we praise together, that binds us together. We're all singing to the same God. We're all made children of the same God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so rather than selfishly fighting one another and trying to put ourselves above one another, we should instead humble ourselves and with gentleness put others before us. Think of them as more significant than we are. And then the next statement he has kind of drives this home a little bit harder. He says, the Lord is at hand. Now you can take that a couple different ways. Uh, you could say the Lord is coming soon, right? His return is imminent. The Lord is at hand. But also it could mean the Lord is nearby. He's present. It's like you could reach out and touch him. He's right here where you are with you. I feel like the second approach probably makes more sense in this context. Because if you think about, you're in a church Leaders are stirring up strife and contention. There's problems going on. There's enemies on the outside, uh, some that want to destroy the church, some that just want to make it look like completely different. Uh, you've got trouble uh, at home with, like, I'm hungry maybe. And all of this stuff is, is troubling you. And now Paul is giving this command to rejoice and show gentleness to everyone. I think it makes more sense to say, do that because God is with you. It could be, Lord's coming, get right before he gets here. Maybe that's the point. But I think it's more like, the Lord is right here next to you. He's here to support you through the difficulty you're enduring, but also, he's here watching you be real selfish. 
So the question is like, do you think he's going to abandon you and let you get destroyed? Do you think that he's not here to help you? Do you think he's not going to come alongside you? He's with you. But also, do you think he'd be pleased by you making so much of yourself? Do you think that he's happy standing next to you and watching you say those harsh words to others? So this belief that the Lord is at hand is a comfort to us, but it's also a conviction. It makes us think about every word we say, every thought we think even. So when you're feeling overwhelmed by difficulty, by strife, whatever else, the Lord's there, He's with you, He sees you. But when you have that urge to put yourself first... <laughs> cause all kinds of strife and division, complain about something, the Lord's right there. He sees you. He's at hand. So in the light of the Lord's presence, Paul then gives the core command of this passage. He says, Do not be anxious about anything. Now, I know we're all familiar with this verse. I think it was a fighter verse not long ago, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We, we, yeah, okay, we've had it memorized probably. So maybe it doesn't like hit you. It doesn't strike you as hard as it should. Maybe it doesn't really like sting like I think it ought to. So let me, let me say it one more time. Let it convict you like it's been convicting me for this past couple weeks. Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, in a world where anxiety and depression are like the most common diagnoses among us, we're all anxious about something. And then here comes this verse, just casually in the letter to the Philippians, not to tell us, Jesus is right with you when you're feeling anxious. He is, don't get me wrong, that is a comfort. He's also not telling us, you can conquer anxiety with three easy steps, just send $29.99 to, no. No, Paul just gives the command. He just says, don't be anxious. He says, don't worry. Don't, don't wallow around in this fear of uncertainty. And we say, okay, Paul, that's great. I don't think that you know what I'm going through. Really? Paul is in prison right now. He's about to be executed for preaching the gospel, he's been stoned and shipwrecked and bit by snakes and betrayed and beaten and locked up multiple times. And yet here he is telling these Philippians, telling us, and probably if he's like any other preacher I've ever known, he's probably telling himself louder than telling anybody else, don't be anxious. So what do we do instead? What do I do instead? I got all this trouble around me. I, I, you, don't, you don't know. It's all this stuff that's weighing on my back. What am I supposed to do if I'm, not, if I'm not supposed to worry about it? Well, he's given us a couple already, right? He says, rejoice in the Lord. That's one. Press into Christian community. That's another. But then here's another that he gives us right after his command. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the command here is, don't be anxious. Tell God what you need. That's, that's the main verb here. Let your requests be made known to God. So when you're overcome 
by anxiety-inducing circumstances, run to God and tell Him about it. We just sang about it. In the song we sang, draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace. Why can we do that? We can, we can run to the throne room of grace. We have access to the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is. The King of the universe is there. And we can, through our great high priest Jesus, we can just go and talk to him. We can boldly enter his throne room and talk to him as our father. That's crazy. You can tell the Lord what's going on, and He hears you. He listens to you. He cares when you cry out to Him. And then Paul kind of says, here's how you let your request be made known. Here, what's it, what does it look like to let my request be made known to God? Three pieces, three elements of making your request known to God. In my mind, they all kind of fall underneath this heading of prayer. Now, the first one is prayer, and I'll kind of help you see how I define that a little differently. Because he says, in everything with prayer, that's the first one, it's kind of logical here. How do we make our request known to God? We speak to Him. I think this kind of prayer here is this, like, coming to God, communing with Him, having a relationship with Him, having a conversation with Him. We come into His presence, we recognize His greatness, our need, the access that we have through Christ, and we pour out our hearts and build a relationship with our Lord. That's praying to Him. But then it says also supplication, with prayer and supplication. Now, some translations use the word petition here, with prayer and petition. I like the word supplication better um, because of the mind picture that it kind of paints for me. Um, so it comes from a Latin verb. Yeah, you already my, my Latin nerd coming out again. Um, so this Latin verb, supplicare, which is to kneel. You actually get the English word submit from this, same root. So in my mind, supplication makes me think of humility, of being on your knees in submission, of, of utter dependence. That's supplication. So we do, we come with prayer. We're building a relationship with God. We're, we're talking to Him as we're speaking to our Father but we're also coming to him with humility, on our knees, beseeching, begging, recognizing our need and his greatness. And then the third one, he says, and with thanksgiving. And that's, that's, that's the one that kicks all of us. Because I don't know, maybe for you it's more, for me it's not so difficult to, when I go through something hard, to pray, right? To, to, to supplicate to, to get, get low, recognize how low I am, and recognize his goodness, and, and, and pray, right? I hope that for all of us, like that's the first thing we do when we encounter hard stuff, is we, we run to God in prayer. I hope that you go with humble prayer and supplication to the Lord when you encounter difficulty. But then Paul has to go and add this other word in there with prayer and petition, or prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving. So you mean while I'm stressed out, depressed, going through this trying, anxiety-inducing time, I'm not only supposed to rejoice in the Lord always, but I'm also supposed to be thankful? Thankful for what? If your joy in the Lord and if your thankfulness are dependent on the blessings that are flowing your way, 
you aren't really worshiping him. You aren't really finding your joy in him. You aren't really thankful to him. You're worshiping the things he gives. You're finding joy in the stuff. You're even worse. You're worshiping and finding joy in yourself. Our thanksgiving is not contingent on God doing what we want him to do. Just just because he created us, because he made us, he's worthy of our thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for making me exist. (coughs) But then when you consider the providential plan of salvation that he worked and was realized in Jesus Christ, we have cause for unending thanksgiving. So if you're waiting for God to come and resolve all your difficulty and give you what you want before you thank Him, you have it backwards. We're called to offer Him thanksgiving simply because of who He is. Simply because of the salvation that He has has purchased for us through Christ. You may have seen it. Gratitude has become kind of a hot topic uh, even in, in secular culture now. So you'll see these, you know, like on Instagram or whatever, these little reels where these people are like talking about an attitude of gratitude. And I don't know, maybe y'all didn't see that. Maybe my algorithm screwed up. I don't know. What does that tell you about me? Um, it sounds really good, this whole attitude of gratitude. It sounds great until you think about what it's really about. The approach of this movement is to practice being thankful. Okay, that's, that's good. It's not really clear who the thankfulness is directed at. It's just kind of like gen- generic be thankful, kind of this ambiguous, I don't know what it means. Um, but here's the reasons why. I actually pulled this from an actual blog, okay? Here's why you should be thankful. It contributes to your well-being by reducing your stress, increasing your optimism, and improving your relationships. Okay, gratitude can certainly do that. Absolutely. And I don't have a problem with the general attitude of gratitude idea, right? I think that's a great thing to teach kids. Hey, let's be thankful instead of being complainers. Good idea. But here what this idea is about, the focus is be thankful because it'll make your life better, right? It'll make you feel better. It'll make your relationships better. It'll make you a better person if you're thankful. That's the opposite of what biblical thankfulness is about. True thankfulness isn't about making me feel better. It will. If I'm thankful, I probably will feel better. That's not the point, though. The point is about honoring somebody else, blessing them because they've blessed me. Thanksgiving is outwardly focused. It's thinking about others, not about me. It's offering appreciation for the kindness of another. So when Paul calls us to thanksgiving, he says, come, offer thanksgiving. Worship the giver of the blessings that you have. Worship the one who pours out kindness on you all the time. The fact that you're still alive is his kindness to you. So we offer thanksgiving not because an attitude of gratitude will make me feel better, but because God is deserving of my humble and and, and jubilant thanksgiving. He deserves my everything, not just my gratitude. I want to praise Him because of who He is and what He's done. So to review, Paul says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. So how do I combat that anxiety? How do I fight it, Paul? Help me out. He says, Praise the Lord for who He is. Rejoice in Him. 
Worship him. Worship him by yourself. Worship him with your family. Worship him with, with your church. Praise him consciously, continuously. It should be something you're doing regularly. He says, press into a Christian community. Put others above yourself. Love one another well. Count others more significant than yourself. Let your reasonableness be apparent to everyone. Build deep, loving, true relationships with your Christian family. And then he says, pray. Talk to the Lord. Let him know what you need. With worshipful and intimate prayer, with humble supplication, get on your knees with heartfelt and God-focused thanksgiving. All right, good job, Ryan. You've given a cute little three-step program, just like I said I wasn't going to do, right? And you say, that's, that's great. Okay, three steps, that's good. Praise, prayer, press in. Maybe that'll work for some amateur anxious guy over there who doesn't know anxiety like I know. For the guy over there who doesn't really have a true struggle, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm anxious because, oh, no, like, I'm not sure if my football team is going to do well this season. Come on, man. You have no idea the extreme difficulty that I'm enduring. And it's true. Maybe this has been like your toughest year yet. Maybe real difficulty, real trial, real anxiety has smacked you really hard. And maybe you've been trying to follow Paul's advice. Maybe you come to church weekly in worship. You're pouring out your heart and your tears in your car. You've leaned hard on fellow believers. You've pressed into a community. You're humbling yourself in the dust and praying and thanking the Lord for what he's done. But the trouble's still there. The trial didn't go away. That monster that's dragging this chain of anxiety He's still just looming there, watching you. And you're thinking, I believe that God can overcome this trial. God can conquer my monsters. God can kill this beast that's creating anxiety in my life. Absolutely he can. He's capable. But it seems like he's too busy dealing with other people's monsters right now. I know he's able to help me. But is he willing to help me? Is he going to? But Paul doesn't just tell us, here's the three steps. Replace your anxiety with praise, community, and prayer, and all will be well. He's not offering the same self-help mantra as the attitude of gratitude, guys. He doesn't just leave you with the command to exchange your anxiety for prayerfulness. He gives you a promise. Look at verse 7. He says, In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is the ultimate longing of an anxious heart? Our desire is peace. That's what we long for. And peace is the promise that God gives to his people. And it's not just like any normal kind of peace. It's, it's the peace of God. It's his peace. Now, peace can be like a lack of quarreling, a lack of chaos, the absence of, of fighting, but peace can also be like this sense of calm or tranquility, and God's peace is both. For the Philippians, the promise of God's peace is the promise of, of the going away of all this quarreling, 
of self-centered dissension within the church. For us, the promise of peace is the assurance that God overcomes the chaos of this world. We have peace with God, first and foremost, through Christ. We're no longer God's enemies, but we also have peace and calm among one another, with each other. There's not dissension, there's not fighting, because God's peace is reigning in us. It's the same way that we can have joy. It's the same way that we can be thankful. It's the Spirit of God dwelling among His people. Breeds these things in us. And like Paul says, this peace is unexplainable. Like it's not something that you can figure out how it works. You've probably seen that before where you've known someone who is going through you know, something incredibly difficult and just had this kind of supernatural peace about them. It's unexplainable. And one of the aspects that makes it so unexplainable is that it's active peace. It's not just like a sense of calm. No, notice what it says. It says, The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. The peace of God is active. It's guarding us. Notice what Paul doesn't promise. He doesn't say, be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and God will come and take all of your problems away. No, I didn't read that, right? He doesn't say that if you just practice the attitude of gratitude and pray real hard, that God will fix everything. He doesn't think, I mean, does he think that God will get him out of prison? I don't know, maybe. God doesn't promise that he will take us out of a trial. He promises that peace will guard us as we pass through it. So God doesn't come and, and all the time vanquish our monsters. He, he's not there, you know, slaying the dragon. He's shielding our hearts and our minds with his peace while the fire is blowing all around us. The best way I can think of to picture this, you remember in Daniel chapter 3, um, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they refuse to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And so they get thrown to this fiery furnace. God could have just, as they're going in, he could have just snatched them right back out. He could have taken the guards and like made them fall over. They did fall over after they you know, got too close to the furnace. Um, but he could have just put the fire out. He could have just removed them from the trial, but he didn't. He, he doesn't rescue them out of it. They go into the fire. And then the Lord is with them in it. They have peace because he's there. When they look into, Neb and all his friends, they look into the little, the little furnace, the little doors, they're like, you see anything in there? Yeah, there are four guys in there, and they're just standing there talking. They're not running around like crazy people going, ah, it's hot! They're, they're just standing there because the Lord has brought peace to guard their hearts and their minds. We can have that kind of peace too. The monster may still be looming over us. The fire is blazing around us. The storm waters are raging upon us. We don't have to fear those things. We are guarded by the peace of God which transcends all understanding. 
And then the last phrase. This last phrase is like the icing on all of it. The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. All of this is in and through Christ. The only reason that we can be shielded, that we can endure the trials and difficulties of life with peace is because Jesus took all that stuff that we're scared of. He took all the pain, all the suffering, all the things that cause us anxiety, they heaped him on top of him. He endured the greatest trial. He bore all of our sins on the cross for us. He was destroyed by the monster. The fire burned him up. The the storms took over him. He died. It killed him. He realized that fear that we have, the the thing that produces the the fear of the unknown, the, the fear that we'll be overcome by it all, it happened to him. And then he rose again. He showed, I have power over all those trials, all those difficulties, all that stuff in your life. Jesus crushes the monster. Jesus quenches the flames. Jesus calms the storm with his word. In the end, all those trials are destroyed. Jesus wins. The story's finished. It's already been written. Jesus overcomes everything. He crushes the powers of sin, death, the devil, darkness, all of it. He crushes it and rules over it all. The battle's won. Jesus is the conqueror and king. He wins the battle and brings the peace. And we can rest in that peace that has been purchased by the resurrection of Christ. So, don't be anxious about anything. Praise the Lord. Find joy in Him. Press into a Christian community. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Pray humbly with thanksgiving. And rest in this promise of peace. A supernatural peace that guards your hearts and your minds. A peace that you can't even understand. A peace that has been purchased by Jesus Christ, the Savior, who took on all the trials of humanity, who suffered for us, who died for our sin, and then rose victorious over it all. Victorious over it all, even over that stuff that's making you anxious right now. Let's pray. Lord God, we, <laughs> we know that anxiety is real, that fear is real, that, that we struggle to listen to Paul's words here. We, <laughs> we don't always know what to do. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say to you. But Lord, you know what we need. You know our hearts. You hear our cry. You hear our prayer. So I pray this morning as we, as we think about the struggles of this life that we may be enduring right now, I pray that you'll help us, help us to praise you, to rejoice in you, to love one another better, to pray earnestly and humbly, to rest in the peace that is promised to us. I pray that you'll send that peace a greater measure of it right now for us. Be with those who are enduring hard things. Give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen.